was actually the very first church that we came to. We had heard about this church when we were still in southern Delaware. We were told that uh, if there was one place in Hood County to where they knew how to praise the Lord, if there was one place in Hood County to where they for sure were going to get a solid word from the pulpit every week, it was going to be Generations Church, and we ought to be sure to visit it. And we did, and, and we have uh, had an opportunity several times since to visit, and we have always found that to be true. So it's an honor to be here with you today. Pastor, thank you for the invitation. I am going to be just going with a couple of scriptures today, and you might want to start to find them right now. One of them is in First Chronicles. One of them is in Second Corinthians. And it is the Second Corinthians one that we will be starting with, and that would be in chapter 3. We've got uh, a good God who puts together all the elements of a service in ways that the different people who are taking part in it don't particularly know about. I, of course, didn't know what Shake was putting together for the song list, but I just want to bring to remembrance that very last song. It said that he makes something beautiful out of me. And we look around and we know that he makes something beautiful out of us, the church. And going with our theme today, we know that he is also able to make something very beautiful out of this nation that we are all so very honored to be a part of. Before we go any further, why don't we open up in a word of prayer, and then we will be going to Second Corinthians. Father, thank you for this wonderful, beautiful day, and thank you, God, for this wonderful, beautiful time of year to celebrate the liberty that, God, you have given to this nation. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to celebrate it. We thank you for the opportunity to think about it. We thank you for the opportunity to consider the challenges that are here before us at this very day. And so, Lord, I'm asking that you would just get me out of the way. I pray that, Lord, you would just help me to just effectively communicate that which you have laid upon my heart to share with your saints. I pray, God, that you would just help us with any distractions that might keep us from hearing what it is that you have for us today. And so, God, with all that in mind, we commit this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go to the third chapter of Second Corinthians and establish what really is the main event here today. And in verse 17, picking up with the second portion of that verse, we have this. It says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And we do most likely have folks who are here with us today who are visiting and perhaps don't normally go to church. And so let me just uh, bring to your, what, attention, to your remembrance, is that as wonderful as all the fireworks are and so forth, that 150 or 200 years from now, there won't too much of that count for much unless you have the freedom in your soul that can only be found by turning your life over to God and getting salvation purchased only through your belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. As we think a little bit bigger than that particular topic, we think about the fact that as we look around the world, wherever there is true liberty, you're going to be looking at a nation to where the Spirit of the Lord is known. You're going to be looking at a nation to where people give at least lip service to the true God of the universe. And we will be considering some more of those things later on, but I just want to just very briefly broach that topic. We are, of course, today celebrating the signing of the Declaration of Independence going back to 1776. You know, John Adams, who eventually became a president, was one of the guys who signed the Declaration of Independence. And here's something that he wrote to his wife at the time, right after they had signed it. He said, it ought to be commemorated as the day of deliverance 
by solemn acts of devotion to Almighty God. And so you see right from the beginning here was somebody recognizing that one way that we needed to celebrate the 4th of July is by doing things very special as unto the Lord. He went on to say it ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade, with shows, games, guns, bells, bonfires, and illuminations from one end of the continent to the other, and from this time forevermore. And so... Certainly, we find ourselves all this time later on still doing all of those kinds of things. And yet I couldn't help be reminded of what the scripture tells us as to what happens in heaven when one of us actually does come to uh, to salvation as if there's a great celebration up there. And I would imagine it puts anything we do down here to shame. But talking about the document that we call the Declaration of Independence, you know, This is, um, just think about the words. They are claiming to be independent. But the fact is, they'd already been fighting for quite some time. At least a year, there had been open warfare between the colonists and England. And as we look to the to, to the roots of this, and you know, we're not going to like really go into this as like a, a history class or something. But I do want to you know bring to your remembrance that a long time before 1776, there were things going on that were going to set the stage for everything that was to follow. In Virginia, we've got two things that happened almost at once. They did happen in the same year. One was that we had the first representative government started in this what became country, the House of Burgesses. And the very same year that we had representative government starting, we had the very first slaves arrive in North America, in Virginia. Now, only a year later, quite a ways north of Virginia, we had a ship coming in from England to Massachusetts. And those, of course, were the Puritans on the Mayflower. And they had no use for slavery whatsoever. And so we had, you know, again, from the very beginning, tremendous tension as a potential for what was going to be developing over the years to follow between these different colonies. Remember, too, why these colonies existed. Is we've got England wanting a whole bunch of cheap timber and furs or whatever it might have been to make things out of in the factories in England. And then they wanted somebody who was going to have to buy those things from the factories, and that's who the colonists were. And so that was a relationship to where things were supposed to be going back and forth between England and the colonies, but it was for the purpose of being advantageous to England. The problem is that after a couple hundred years of that, the people in the colonies didn't think that that was such a good deal anymore. And as we think about maybe the middle 1700s or so, we've got a big war that breaks out between the English and the French, but it was fought here. And so you've got like George Washington as a colonel in the British Army in Virginia and in other areas on the East Coast fighting against the French, fighting against the Indians. And so... You know, this thing lasted kind of a long time. We call it the French and Indian War. In England, they called it the Seven Years' War. And what happened is it drained all the money out of the treasuries in England. And so England said, well, we're doing this for those guys. Why shouldn't they pay for it? And so it seemed natural to the English people that they start telling them, well, you know, you're going to have to start paying all these taxes. And the colonists, of course, are saying, well, who are you? You know, we don't have any vote in that parliament, so we don't want to pay those taxes. And so as we get into the 1770s, we find that, again, there's open warfare breaking out over these issues. That's where the Boston Tea Party comes in. That's where uh, the Battle of Bunker Hill and a whole bunch of other things start. But by 1776, what we have is we've got the, the colonists saying we actually want to rule ourselves. Now, again, remember the tension between how they're thinking in Massachusetts and how they're thinking in Virginia about things, now we've got these 13 colonies are all supposed to somehow come together and figure out a way to make a united statement to the world that we are now a country of our own. We are no longer a part of the British Empire. And so these 56 men 
were given that charge. And there's one line in particular that most of us would probably think of when we do think of the Declaration of Independence, and it goes like this. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The problem is that when we try to write this document, We've got people who find themselves really at odds on some very basic issues. And so how is it that they're going to be able to, all 56 of them, put their name onto this document that they agree with it? And it was very hard to find that kind of wording. The fact is, what we call the Declaration of Independence is not the same document that, you know, they really, many of them wanted to write. At least a quarter of it was taken out before they could get the 56 signatures. And 25% of that original document was extremely critical of slavery. Thomas Jefferson, a southerner, the main guy associated with writing it, actually was very, very upset that that part was taken out. And we've got the seeds of a lot of problems being sown in those discussions. George Washington was quoted at the time as saying this, I can only say that there is not a man living who wishes more sincerely than I do to see a plan adopted for the abolition of slavery. But who is it who's sitting around this table? Massachusetts people who hate slavery and South Carolina people to where 60% of the population is in slavery. And so this, this was something which, of course, took another, uh, most of 100 years after that, before that issue was really solved. But at any rate, it did finally get signed. The model of the Declaration of Independence, of course, has become used around the world. Just a little while after it was signed, 50 years or so, Mexico used this as a model for their own thinking when they broke away from Spain. The Republic of Texas used it in 1836 when they broke away from Mexico. And even in the last four or five or six years, there are countries that are still looking to the Declaration of Independence as a way to, uh, to, 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 to break away from whatever oppressive powers there may have been. Now, the problem with you know making a statement like what they did is it's one thing to say, we're no longer a part of you, England, it's another thing to prove it. And so these 56 guys eventually found a document that they could all agree to. But from there, it took another seven years of fighting. A lot of people died from 76 to 83. And the people who put their name on that document did so at great risk. Let's take a look at one of these fellas. They pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. Of the 56 men who signed the Declaration of Independence, nine died of wounds or hardships during the war. Five were captured and imprisoned, in each case with brutal treatment. Several lost wives, sons, or entire families. One lost his 13 children. All were at one time or another victims of manhunts and driven from their homes. Twelve signers had their homes completely burned. Seventeen lost everything they owned. One delegate and signer of the Declaration of Independence, Robert Morris, the merchant prince of Philadelphia, didn't hesitate to sacrifice his private interests for the public good when occasion demanded it. He met Washington's appeals and pleas for money year after year. He made and raised arms and provisions which made it possible for Washington to cross the Delaware at Trenton. He used his own fleet of ships to build the American Navy and in the process lost 150 ships, leaving his own fortune and credit almost dry. Robert Morris would have probably been the equivalent of a billionaire in our time, and yet he sacrificed it all for his new nation. He would never rebound to his former success. 
Never before and never since have there been such remarkable men who deserve our respect, our honor, and our remembrance. Please join our family in remembering the great men who sacrificed to create this country. Feel free to share this video with anyone and everyone that you feel will benefit from it. Now, as we've seen, there was a tremendous price paid for what it is that you and I enjoy today. I suppose it would be something on the neighborhood, in, in, in the realm of maybe like Bill Gates going broke over it. So it was, it was a, a great sacrifice. Now, what I'd like to consider at this time is what was the mindset like in this country at that time, in the, in, in the early days? Now the war is over. Now we are the United States of America. You know, we're into uh, the, the early to the mid-1800s. And we see things like this. George Washington said, now just imagine, you know, like if somebody got up in public and said this today, you'd be, I don't know, thrown off the stage, I suppose. And yet it was actually George Washington who said it. He said, if you are not a Christian, you are not qualified to run for public office. He said, it is impossible to govern without God and the Bible. He said, let us indulge with, I'm sorry, let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. Reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in the absence of religious principle. Now, after he was dead and gone, there was a kind of a famous guy who came from France and traveled all over the United States, meeting people, going to cities, going to log huts, and, and, and he wrote about all of these experiences, a guy named de Tocqueville. And here are some of the things I find very interesting in, in what he wrote. One is he said, America is great because America is good. And it reminds me of the Bible verse where it says that righteousness exalts a nation to where you have widespread understandings of biblical principles among the people of the land, people who by and large are living for the Lord. And that's a place to where God can bless in such a way to where that nation can continue to rise up and become a great nation. America is great, said de Tocqueville. We're talking 1820, 1830, because America is good. He said this, the Americans combined the notions of religion and liberty. And, and by the way, when they say religion, they mean Christianity. That, that's how the word was used at the time. When Americans combined the notion, I'm sorry, the Americans combined the notions of religion and liberty so intimately in their minds that it is impossible for them to conceive of one without the other. And, you know, we hear an awful lot about separation of church and state and, you know, all these kinds of things. This is not the way the mind of the American people worked in the early days. Now, what about since then? Well, Certainly, God has been a part of the American mindset from then, in part, right up until today. But let's just take a look at some of the things that occurred. Abraham Lincoln, the very last thing he did before he died, is he signed a congressional bill that made it to where, in God we trust, was put on our money. He's got a great quote. A quote that, by the way, is basically the theme of everything we're going to be talking about here today. He said, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. Later on, Harry Truman said this, when the U.S. was established, the motto was in God we trust. That is still our motto. And we still place our firm trust in God. Ten or twelve years later, John Kennedy said the same thing. The guiding principle of this nation has been, is now, and ever shall be. In God 
we trust. Reagan put it this way. Our nation's motto reflects a basic recognition that there is a divine authority in the universe which, to which this nation owes homage. And then Reagan said, if we ever forget that we are one nation under God, then we will be a nation gone under. Coming to more recent times, Bush too said it like this, the momentum of freedom in our world is unmistakable. And it is not carried forward by our power alone. We can trust in that greater power who guides the unfolding of the years. And in all that is to come, we know that his purposes are just and true. You know, there was a time when I was in college, I had an opportunity to spend a semester in Europe. I was there for about four months or so. And was able to visit a number of countries, maybe half a dozen or so. But when I came back, I, I found myself in a kind of a funny place is because I, I was a little bit familiar with Europe, and yet all the time when people in Europe would ask me about the U.S., I found out that I didn't know very much. I hadn't been to too many places. And so I was a school teacher at the time, and I was able to do something about that to where, you know, with summers off and so forth. And eventually, um, I actually quit my teaching job and, 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 and got into it full-time of figuring out what America was all about. And, and I've actually done a circle of the United States on a bicycle. And, and so starting in Wisconsin, which is where I myself am from, um, you know, headed out from there and, and, and went through some of the great cities in Michigan and through the locks up at Sault Ste. Marie and across through Niagara Falls and up to New England and all those gorgeous little white steeples, you know, and, and great cities up and down the East Coast from Boston, New York, D.C., Baltimore, uh, others down into the South, eventually got all the way down to uh, Key West. And, and, and someplace along the way there, uh, God was starting to get my attention, by the way. Um, he would send Christians to pull me out of gales and tornadoes and all kinds of stupid situations I got into, to where finally, on the 15th of January in 1978, in a little old Baptist church in Indiantown, Florida, uh, yeah, Florida uh, near Lake Okeechobee, uh, somebody said, why don't you give your heart to the Lord? And, and I had stolen a Bible already up in Georgia or someplace. I'd read it two or three times. I knew I wasn't a Christian. I knew what it meant to be a Christian. And, and, and God had just softened my heart in such a way, you know, to where, uh, you know, we prayed together. And uh, it, it was a very special night. You know, uh, many of you actually, if I give you a couple more details, actually remember that night yourself. Because that was the night that the Cowboys played Denver for the Super Bowl. And they won that game. And... I had been saved about 30 minutes, found myself in a hotel because the guy who led me to the Lord owned the local hotel, told me I could go down there and stay there for free. And so uh, for the very first time, there was a Super Bowl played at night, which I didn't even know about because I didn't you know, have a radio or whatever on the bike. And so I, uh, I, I, I went in there and turned on the TV, and lo and behold, there's a Super Bowl. I always, already thought I had you know, uh, missed it. And so you've got... Uh, Tom Landry, born again, talking about Jesus. You got Roger Staubach, born again, talking about Jesus. You got Craig Morton, who I think the year before was a cowboy, all of a sudden is throwing for Denver, born again, talking about Jesus. And, and you know, it was just a, a real special night. It was certainly the highlight of everything that happened, uh, not only on that bike trip, which ended up taking some two years, but, uh, you know, certainly of my entire life. But at any rate, rode on out of town, started to read the Bible a whole bunch. And, and started to have a lot of experiences in a lot of different churches. Eventually got to Texas, came in at Beaumont, and uh, went across, you know, south of here, Austin, San Antonio. Uh, 17 days, 900 miles later, rode out at El Paso, crossed up into New Mexico and kept on going with the Rockies and out to the Pacific Coast and, you know, up the Pack Highway and eventually uh, came back again. Uh, bang nails in Florida, by the way, you know, to uh, take a break and get some money and painted houses in California and uh, had a, a really tough time in Santa Fe for a winter uh, at a ski resort. I ran the uh, 
money side of the ski school there. So I got free ski lessons every day and had a lot of fun. At any rate, um, what I came out of that with is a conclusion that we do have a wonderful country. I've been able to get to uh, 47 states. I've been everywhere now but Montana, North Dakota, and Alaska. And I've met great, great people all along the way. And what a beautiful country it is. And I'm saying all of that, you know, as context for what it is that we're about to get into here is I have a, a deep conviction that the very most patriotic thing that we could do today as we celebrate this wonderful time of year is to make like this Bible is our glasses. And, and let's, let's put on our Bible glasses and, and take a look at America in 2011. Now, we know that certainly if we want to take a really big picture, we would take note of the fact that in the late 40s, something really different happened on the world clock. And that was when Israel became a nation again. And certainly 10 years ago on 9-11, another very important thing happened to where, you know, all of these things in America are happening within that context of certainly those two events. Now, if we could, let's go to First Chronicles. And we'll be going to the 12th chapter. And if I could set the stage for you a little bit, what you've got is you've got one guy going around calling himself the king by the name of Saul. And then you've got another guy who's actually been anointed as king by the prophet named David, uh, the, the King David. And he is not actually walking in that office yet, but he has the anointing to walk in that office. And, and people are starting to come over to his side. And this particular set of events is involving an area, uh, a, a place called Ziklag. And it gives you a long list of all the different people who are coming to him. But let's zero in, if we could please, to the verse in chapter 12, 1 Chronicles, verse 32. And it says, of the sons of Issachar, now that's a tribe, you know, of, of the Jews, of the sons of Issachar, who had understanding of the times, to know what Israel ought to do. Now this is what we're going to uh, try to do today. We're going to try to be like the sons of Issachar. Let's see if we can understand the times in which we are. Let us see if we can understand what it is that God would have for us. You know, Abraham Lincoln, quoting from him again, he said, if we could know first where we are and where we are tending, we could then better judge what to do and how to do it. And I like this quote from de Tocqueville. He said, the greatness of America lies not in being more enlightened than any other nation, but rather in her ability to repair her faults. So, where are we? Where are we tending? We need to be like the sons of Issachar. We need to understand the times. And we need to make good on de Tocqueville's claim that we know how to repair our faults. Now, we could list a bunch of statistics, but that would be kind of boring. But let's just consider a little list of what surely the case could be made that these would be faults in America. Our crime rate. Our divorce rate. Abortion. Over 52 million since 1973. Drugs. Why should a place like America be the biggest consumer of illegal drugs in the world? Our educational system. Gay marriage. We just saw a few days ago. Another state added to the list. There's now 18 states that allow same-sex civil unions or gay marriages or recognize those things in other states, District of Columbia besides. And 
where are we in the matter of understanding our situation with Muslims in this country and in the world? Here's a quote from the President of the United States made not so long ago. I will do everything I can as long as I am President of the United States to remind the American people that we are one nation under God. And we may call that God by different names, but we remain one nation. On another occasion, Barack Obama said this, America and Islam are not exclusive and need not be in competition. Instead, they overlap and share common principles of justice and progress, tolerance and dignity of all human beings. And as of May 19th of 2011, just not all that long ago, the official United States position, as stated by our president, is that there need to be two permanent nations, one for the Jews and one for the Palestinians, and that Israel needs to recognize that there cannot be, listen to these words, a permanent occupation of Palestine by the Jews. In my own devotions this morning, I don't think it's an accident that I happen to be in Joel chapter 3. And we have a theme in there that uh, is, I'm sure, throughout the Old Testament, is that God doesn't take kindly to people pushing around His chosen people in his chosen place. And that's a theme that I believe as a nation we are missing. And I believe it will be to our detriment. You know, in the spring of 2011, we've got uprisings going on all over North Africa, all over the Middle East. And we're told, well, the Muslim Brotherhood is behind that and they're just a secular organization. You know, this is a good thing. Well, there's a fellow whose name is Muhammad Akram who is on the board of directors for the Muslim Brotherhood of North America. And if you were to read some of the stuff he has to say, you might come to a different conclusion. He said in papers that were confiscated in a raid by the FBI, this is now the Muslim Brotherhood in North America. He's writing to such. The process of settlement is a civilization slash jihadist process with all that word means. The Muslim Brotherhood must understand that their work in America is a kind of grand jihad in eliminating and destroying the Western civilization from within and sabotaging its miserable house by their own hands and by the, by the hands of Muslims so that Western civilization is destroyed and eliminated, and that Islam is made victorious in North America over all other religions. We need to understand the times. Moving on. How are we doing on recognizing within the church some of the wolves that are among us? Now, I'm not going to develop this into a big topic, but on the chance that some of you may not be familiar with Mormonism, let me just give you a little thumbnail sketch, is that the Mormons believe that God used to be a man on another planet called Kolob, and he was a good Mormon, and because he was a good Mormon, he turned into a god, and now he's the god of this planet, but he's got plenty of gods over him, and all the Mormons that you know right here are looking to eventually become a god their own selves and to move on and have a planet of their own, to be polygamously married in heaven with millions and millions in the harem and to be creating children up in uh, heaven, uh, a different heaven, a different earth, but, you know, that they're going to be doing that in the same way the children are made here and that they will then be born into bodies on that other planet and, you know, that that's kind of the deal. It's called eternal progression which is to say that for the world we're in, that Jesus and the devil are literally brothers, that they're both sons of Heavenly Father. And, 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 and so, you know, they had a fight up in heaven and it 
you know, has carried on down here to earth. Now, how many think that does not sound like Christianity? I mean, that's not Christianity, right? You can't believe in lots of gods. You can't believe you're going to be a god. You can't believe that Jesus and the devil are brothers. You know, all that stuff. That's not Christian. Our topic is, how's the church doing at recognizing wolves? Here's a quote from about five years ago from the president of Fuller Theological Seminary. He said, talking to a large group of Mormon leaders, I am now convinced that we evangelicals have often seriously misrepresented the beliefs and practices of the Mormon community. Indeed, let me state it bluntly to the Mormon people here today, this evening, we have sinned against you. The God of the scriptures makes it clear that this is a terrible thing to bear false witness against our neighbors, and we have done it to you. Now, if you were to try to think about some people on the political scene nowadays who are openly identified as being Mormons, you probably could come up with a couple of faces, couldn't you? Mitt Romney would be one of them. Glenn Beck would be one of them. Those people say that they're Mormons. They are Mormons. They're practicing Mormons. They believe all of those things. Why do we have David Barton going around the country telling people that Glenn Beck gives evidence of salvation? You don't have evidence of salvation if you're trying to be a god. You don't have evidence of salvation if you think God used to be a man. You're worshiping the wrong God. You're not a Christian if you think that your Jesus is a brother to Satan. That's not evidence of salvation. On the short list of things I've ever seen done right in this area was a magazine article that I saw in February of 2008 when Mitt Romney was also a candidate for president. And there was a magazine out of a Christian college in Southern California, the Bible Institute of Los Angeles, Biola for short. Uh, they wrote this. They said, Christians need to understand that Mormon missionaries all over the world are going to be pointing to Mitt Romney as the president of the United States and using it as a hook to pull people into the kingdom of darkness. And whatever you think about his politics, you need to recognize that that would be an insult to the kingdom of God to have him in office. And you need to, no matter what you think about his politics and what you think about you know, his policies and so forth, you ought not to vote for him because you are a citizen of heaven before you are a citizen of the United States. You don't hear that very often, but you will hear it sometimes. And I commend them for it. It was only in March of this year that the National Association of Evangelicals. Now, that's a pretty solid organization by all reports. I mean, the guy who's in charge of Assemblies of God for the whole world sits on their board of directors, for example. And, and lots of heavyweights sit on their board of directors. As recently as March of 2011, they held their semi-annual uh, meeting in Park City, Utah, for the very purpose of promoting fellowship and understanding and reconciliation and acceptance and forgiveness between Christians and Mormons. Now, come on. I'm not talking about let's go out and shoot Mormons. <laughs> but let's not, let's not pretend they're, you know, like are you a Lutheran or a Baptist or, or a Mormon? <laughs> I mean, they're not a Christian denomination. They are a pagan religion. And, and, and they're not... One of us. And so you see, we have some faults then within our state policies, within our national policies. And again, I believe that we're taking a very short and dangerous view on some of these things. We've also got faults within the leadership of some very big and important ministries who are not being faithful to the very most basic of doctrines. But besides all that, we could look around us and see with our own eyes some things that we might want to be a little bit curious about. Do you remember the middle of April? You know, in three days, there were 164 tornadoes in 14 different states. And that was before Joplin and the big ones. <laughs> Do you know that 
there has been flooding of historic proportions in this country. I came through Memphis in early May. And whatever you see on TV doesn't, I mean, it's not close to how bad it really is. You know, that, that's historic proportion flooding that's been going on in our country this year. Some people are afraid that there have already been nuclear incidents in Nebraska and other places where nuclear plants are being flooded. Some people say we ought not to even worry about California falling off into the ocean from some earthquake. The really big one's going to happen in Yellowstone, and it's going to destroy every state around it. One week in March, we had 14 earthquakes recorded in 10 different countries around this world. And what are we supposed to make of a Chinese sub sitting off the coast of Los Angeles last November shooting off a missile (laughs) just for play? They didn't shoot it at L.A. They shot it out to the ocean. But I guarantee you, you go on your Google, you won't have any trouble finding stuff if you put in Chinese submarine Los Angeles, November 2010. You can see pictures of it. What is going on? I wouldn't speculate on end times prophecy or the judgments of God. I've never forgotten, however, something that I read a long, long time ago by a guy named Leonard Ravenhill. He said many decades ago that if God does not judge America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. I would like to state that I do love this country and I don't want to live anywhere else. But I do know for a fact, remember this now, looking at it through the Bible's eyes, God is not a white Republican. God is not even an American. God has his own agenda. And nothing will get in the way of what he wants to accomplish and when and how he wants to do it. I remember thousands of years ago, there was a young lady by the name of Esther. And she was told, if you don't stand up and do what you're supposed to do, that's your loss, but God will just raise up someone else and get it done anyway. And I would remind you today that the people of God Dare not forget that we are citizens of heaven first. And that eternity is a lot, lot, lot longer than the next news cycle. The best thing we could possibly do is to be found on his side. Doesn't matter what Sean Hannity thinks about that. It doesn't matter what Bill Mayer thinks about that. The only thing that matters is what does God think about us as individuals and what does he think about us as a nation? Our salvation is not found in Barack Obama. Our salvation is not found in the Tea Party. Our salvation is not found in whoever it is that the Republicans get around to putting up for their presidential candidate. But we do have a biblical command that we are to pray for our leaders. And we have a moral duty to vote according to God's principles and not according to our wallets. Many in political leadership have abandoned biblical principles. Many in church leadership have watered down the gospel so much that you can scarce recognize it, if at all. Compromise is rampant within the church. And a certain amount of it is because we have become more zealous for the political process than we are for God's laws and principles. There's a fellow I know by the name of Ed Decker. He is the founder of a ministry called Saints Alive. He says this, We as a nation have disgraced the Bible and the foundational principles within it that helped form 
this nation and its laws. And our leaders stand in defiance to them. Being a Christian is a cursed thing in a world which is embracing Islam in its place. You know, saints, the Christians in China are poor. And they are beaten. And they are imprisoned. They do have angels show up once in a while and walk them through locked doors. They do raise the dead on a pretty regular basis. You know, the Chinese Christians don't want anything to do with the Western church. They scarce recognize it as being what it is that Jesus talks about. And so I leave us with a charge today. Let us love God. Let us love his church. And let us love this great country that he's raised up some 235 years ago. But let us not forget that Job was right when he said in chapter 12, he makes nations great and destroys them. He enlarges nations and guides them. He takes away the understanding of the chiefs of the people of the earth and makes them wander in pathless wilderness. They grope in the dark without light and he makes them stagger like a drunken man. We need to pray for our country. Because I don't think that God looking down is really all that pleased. I think that we need to pray. I think we need to weep. I think we need to return to the roots of what made us to be a great country. Because the other part of the verse we quoted before is that righteousness exalts a nation. The rest of it is that sin is a reproach to any people. Surely judgment begins in the house of God. Surely our churches need a great revival. You know, Ruth and I have had the opportunity to visit two and three and more churches a day all around this area. We need a whole lot more folks like Alan Latta who get up and preach a solid word, who are a lot more concerned about pleasing God than pleasing people who are creative and always looking for ways to reach out to the unsaved. We need a revival in our churches and we need an awakening all around our country. Let's pray. Father, if the truth be known, whether they are or not, our hearts ought to be broken over the state of affairs in our country to where the legislatures and the judges and the executive branches and state capitals and the nation's capital are in fact just flaunting everything that made this country great. And so, Lord, I pray that you would raise up great pastors and that God, your Holy Ghost, would be providing great conviction to the people in your churches across this country. And that, Lord, you would help us all to recognize that our neighbors, our friends, unsaved, need to be saved. And that, God, maybe you might still be merciful. You've been merciful sometimes by 100 or 200 years with countries that were way off base. You gave them time to come around. We pray for time to come around. We know, God, that we are a needy, needy nation this day that we have drifted far away from the time to when somebody could get up and say you had to be a Christian to even be qualified for office. Help us, God, not this moment, but help us in our private prayer time. Help us in our political involvements. Help us in our conversations with our friends and our neighbors and our family. 
to be used of you to bring more and more into the kingdom of God and along the way for this nation to become, once again, all you intended for it to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Rob, for a strong, clear word that some would say was not politically correct. But the truth, uh, for, from, 91, from 85 to 91, I was working at the Crescent Hotel every day with Mormons and Palestinian Muslims. And he did not misrepresent those cases at all. Because I know them, and so um, they do believe, Mormons do believe that God used to be a man, and therefore he's not almighty God, because there's another God above him that they don't know about, and keep him in a mysterious class, and so that's not Christianity. So anyway, I didn't beat them up. I loved them. I was friends with them, but just when it was time to agree to disagree, we would do it, but plainly state our cases. And uh, God is not a white American Republican. Amen. He is almighty God. Amen. And we carry a dual citizenship. We're Americans, which is probably the highest honor on earth to be a citizen of any country. So we're really blessed there. And we're citizens of the eternal kingdom of almighty God. Another honor. And so may the Lord give us wisdom in representing that kingdom always. And if anything has fueled corruption in America, it's been a corrupt church. It's been our own hypocrisy. So may the Lord lead us to walk in purity. Amen. Let's, let's pray again. Lord Jesus, help us to be model citizens, to uh, walk in light of truth as you've revealed it, and to walk in love with those we don't agree with. And Lord, to plainly share the truth and clarity and help us, Lord, not to walk in sin. Help us, Lord, to walk in what we preach Give us strength and grace to do so and to have mercy to help restore those who have fallen in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You may stand and I'll pronounce a blessing and I want you to have a joyous holiday. We have flags out in the foyer. Feel free to take one and put it on your car and let's celebrate the blessings that God has blessed us with in our nation. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. God bless you. Have a great holiday. Amen.